0: Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to thank and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hello everyone, and welcome to Bouncing Back, the Personal Resilience Insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I am your host, Joanna. Let's get started. Hi, guys, and welcome back. I'm your host, Joanna, and today I'm joined by Kasani Swariendini. Kasani is a general psychologist with six years of experience working with young adults to make better decisions in their life. She's also currently completing a PhD on cognitive biases and decision making and has a passion for improving mental health. So today we're going to be talking about cognitive appraisal and how our biases shape our decision making. So let's get started today. Hi Kasani. so lovely to have you on the show.
1: Hey Joanna, thanks everyone to like have me here. I'm so excited.
0: Yeah, it's going to be great. So before we get started, would you just like to introduce yourself with a bit about who you are for those of us who don't know you?
1: Yes, thank you for that. So yeah, my name is Kasani, and I'm a general psychologist. I work with clients. Um, I only work maybe a few days a week uh, while also like completing my PhD, as Joanna said. And um, I was born and raised in Indonesia, but I've been living in Brisbane for the last 12 years. So it's, it's been really great. I think I got a lot of great opportunities working here as a psychologist. And um, as Joanna said, I'm very passionate about cognitive biases and decision making. So I'm really looking forward to talking more about it today.
0: Beautiful. And how are you finding Brisbane
1: It's great. Um, I think the weather is probably a little bit more bearable than Melbourne, or so people say. uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's been pretty cold lately, but nothing, nothing too horrendous.
0: Yeah, our weather's pretty shocking here at times. Um, <laughs> now, we're just going to get into some get to know the guest questions. So I'm just going to ask you some more personal questions that aren't really related to the topic, um, mm-hmm. but just so we can get to know you a bit better. So let's talk about books. Are there any books that you're reading at the moment and you recommend a favorite maybe?
1: Yeah, I actually just started reading uh this new book by Annie Duke. Um it's called Thinking in Bets. So um because Annie Duke, she's one of the world champions in poker and then she does a lot of um talks about like decision making and how poker actually helped her being a better decision maker. So I know nothing about poker. That's the thing, (laughs) but it it is so interesting. Um, the way she writes it is really well. So highly recommend it to everyone.
0: That sounds really interesting. I wasn't expecting that. Are you learning a bit about (laughs) poker as you go as well? A little bit.
1: Yeah. A little bit because she talked about some of the rules and I think some of the hands as well. Even if you're n- never into poker before, I seriously have been like YouTubing a lot of poker videos just trying to understand what's going on. So
0: It looks so confusing. I see it like come up in like so many movies and I just have no idea what's happening. But <laughs> no, that would be so interesting to learn about. Um, speaking of movies, do you have any that you're watching at the moment or a favourite?
1: I don't have any anything that i'm watching but i think my ultimate favorite of all time has to be inception so i don't Ooh. know if you watch that one
0: i've heard of it i haven't watched it i'm so bad with like watching like proper good movies i always stick like the <laughs> ones everyone says are so bad like i don't know like twilight or something like that <laughs> no i'm not trying to diss twilight i love twilight but i really should get to watch like the better movies like inception um what's that one about so it's about
1: like I think the whole memes about it it's like you know a dream within a dream sort of thing but the reason the reason why I love it so much is because just the psychological implications of it because um without trying to like spoil it too much for you but you have to watch it um basically the idea is like can you actually plant ideas into someone else's mind and that's of what we're doing right like um we unintentionally like plant ideas in people people's minds or even like intentionally so um but also it has like leonardo dicaprio so i mean
0: yeah that's all you need That's <laughs> all yeah. me i'll definitely be watching that now um <laughs> yeah. and since we're doing a podcast do you listen yeah. to podcasts at all i do not a lot i think i'm quite here with my
1: podcast but um I always listen to Jordan Peterson's podcast on weekends um because like he would go through all of these different guests and they would talk about like all of these different things and it's always so fascinating just yeah listening to two hours of podcasts while like going on long walks with my puppy so it's oh. yeah it's great
0: Yeah, no, that sounds beautiful. I think, like, long podcasts, especially when you... just like at the gym going for a walk doing something where you've just got a lot of time to be listening to something why not fill it with a podcast so that's really great yeah um so now we'll get into the part that we've been waiting for which is all the nitty-gritty questions Um, as i've mentioned today we're talking about some more complex topics like cognitive appraisal and bias so i know that some of us might not know what that is i know i'm a bit still confused about it so let's make sure we unpack those first um But we're going to just start off with um, why resilience is important in our life and why do you think that it is?
1: Well, resilience is important because we are going to experience a lot of unexpected twists and turns in our lives, right? And to be really resilient is not to avoid these difficult times in our lives, but to actually be able to bounce back even through adversity. So... Um, yeah, so that's why resilience is a very important skill to have. I don't think it's necessarily a personality trait, but it is definitely like a skill that needs to be developed and can be developed as well.
0: Yeah, I really love that. I feel like, um, a lot of people might think that they either have it or they don't. And it's really great that you said it's something that can be developed because it leads perfectly into my next question of um, many people think that resilience means being immune to stresses and adversity. Like, what do you think about this? It's obviously something you can develop. Um, Yeah.
1: Well, it's when you think about like being immune, like we usually – relate this to immunity in like a physical like sense, you know being immune to illnesses or like diseases but if you actually google how do you build immunity um it gives you all of these very practical things right like it tells you to exercise regularly eat healthy sleep enough um don't drink excessively which seems pretty basic right and the same sort of activities i would argue applies for mental health resilience as well because when we do all of these strategies like it doesn't mean that when it's flu season i'm gonna be like free i'm not gonna get (laughs) flu at all like guaranteed it's like well i might still get it but i would probably lessen the probability of getting flu And when we sort of relate it back to mental health, we go through different stresses in our lives, right? Like, you know, inflation, um, relationship breakup, grief, all of these unexpected things. And being, I think, being resilient and being immune to like stresses and adversity means that we are able to do all of these practical strategies so that we can I guess like lessen the probability of getting um, some sort of like serious mental health issues after these kinds of stresses.
0: Yeah, so like building resilience is just a way of mitigating sort of how stresses and adversity affects you and sort of being able to better equip yourself to handle those situations. Yeah, because
1: I think a lot of um in a lot of cases, um, at least from what I've seen from the clients that I've worked with, um, a lot of their issues stemmed from say like a particular stressful time, but then they were sort of like unable to I guess like process that stressful situation, whatever that was, and then that sort of piled up with other stressful things happening in their lives and it just sort of becomes this massive tangled web um, of issues and that's when they actually take their time to come and see a psychologist and we have to yeah. kind of slowly untangle that.
0: Yeah, I'm actually super curious. Like when you get situations like that where it's just this sort of accumulation of so many different sort of, I guess, troubles in one, like how do you even begin to deal with that? What I usually
1: like to do with my clients is to actually like explore all of these situations together. And we're trying to see if there's any recurring themes or like patterns that might have emerged across these situations. So the situations could be vastly different. Like It could be from, uh, let's say, like bullying experience in high school, and then I guess maybe... um, relationship breakups in university or in like in adulthood it could be um i guess inability to i guess work well with their work colleagues or something like that so it's different kind of context but when you really look at them they probably have like quite similar themes so whether it is some sort of beliefs that they hold about themselves that makes it difficult for them to build meaningful relationships with people. Or it could be also like their repeated patterns of behavior. Let's just say um, a really good example would be a client of mine um, to sort of like have this idea of like, oh, I would have to cut this relationship first because i don't want to get hurt so they would just sort of unintentionally like sabotage relationships or yeah just trying to like cut it off in advance so it it varies i think for clients to clients but it's a very useful way to i guess like unpack the core issues underneath these kind of situational issues because the situations they're just, they're just like frilly kind of problems. They're not actually the core problems. So that's what we really trying to get into in our sessions. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And with those like bigger problems or like the core problems, mm-hmm. would you say there's like a lot of reliance on decision-making and the ability to make better decisions for yourself, um, to get through those? A lot of the times,
1: yes, Um, even though a lot of the times as well, we don't realise that we are actually making decisions at those critical times because I think we don't realise how many decisions we actually make um, continuously. And we think of decision-making when we decide whether to change our jobs or whether we should move houses you know those kind of big decisions but in reality we make all of those smaller decisions as well even as small as deciding whether or not i would wake up early and go to the gym this morning Um, that can definitely um, snowball into other kind of decisions in later that day so i think people don't realize that sometimes we tend to make some decisions that actually increases the probability of stressful things happening to us. So,
0: Yeah, for sure. And moving into my next question now, how would you define cognitive appraisal?
1: So I guess like it's such a fancy word, isn't it? (laughs) Cognitive appraisal. It really is. Yeah. (laughs) Um, It's... It's basically how we make sense or how, how we understand a situation, right? because as, as human beings, like we always try to make sense of the world around us. We try to make sense of ourselves, um, why is this thing happening? all that kind of stuff. Um, even when we don't like intentionally do it, sometimes you know some people make decisions, we disagree with and we we try to make sense of that we try to understand okay why is this person making that decision so yeah like i guess to put it simply it's like how we understand like this specific situation
0: Yeah, no, that that really explained it for me. I totally wasn't Googling like cognitive (laughs) appraisal kids definition this morning because I was just trying to wrap my head around what it actually means. Um, But that, no, that's actually really great. So how does Mm. cognitive appraisal now then affect personal resilience, do you think?
1: Well, because, you know, cognitive appraisal is how we make sense of things, so it relates back to resilience as in when we go through a stressful times, how do we make sense of that? So let's just say, I think this is probably the most common way of understanding things. And I think we all like fall into this trap. Um, Good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. So if bad things happen to me, what does that say about myself? And we sort of, I guess, like, continue our lives holding on to that. And I see this in a lot of cases with people going through um, trauma, um, especially with, like, sexual trauma, because it's such a, a very difficult thing to understand, like, how could this happen? And sometimes it's also really hard to objectively see the situation, right? Because we kind of view situations from our own perspectives. So depending on our initial set of beliefs, depending on how we view the world, depending on how we were taught as kids, like how we should see the world, then that sort of translates to how we then, I guess, process these um, unfortunate situations. Um And in that sense, when bad things happen to us, we kind of like grapple with these very difficult emotions because what happened to me was so bad. Um, But it's also really hard to completely externalize it, to completely say like, oh, this is this person's fault. Um, So we then sort of, Try to make it a bit easier for us to make sense of it. So what's the easiest way to understand? It? It's like, oh, well, because I deserve it. And yeah, that really relates to I guess, like our resilience say, like, if more bad things happen to us or will we get really unlucky? And of course, you know, I'm not going to get that because I'm this kind of person. So it's um, it's usually like the core issue that we get to when, uh, when I work with clients, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. And I think so many people can relate to that. Like one bad mm-hmm. thing will happen to you and then another one will happen and you will just automatically assume I'm a bad person. Cause all these bad things are happening to me. And that's mm-hmm. a really hard thing to try and get over and try and convince yourself that that's not true. Um, how mm-hmm. would you normally deal with trying to overcome that thought pattern?
1: We, We're usually trying to go through it in our sessions, right? We're trying to either look for evidence of things of like, well, things have gone actually pretty well in some areas. So we're trying to balance out the client's um, appraisal um, a little bit better so that it's not so much, you know, black or white as in like, oh, bad things will always happen to me. None of the good things will ever happen. Well, no, actually, some good things did happen. Um, and I guess that's one way to like look at it. Um, another way as well is usually, I guess, trying to turn the clients into like a third person, I guess, let's just say they're viewing the same kind of situation, but it's happening to someone else. And the reason why we do this as well is because people tend to have more compassion towards other people. So um, they can see like, okay, let's just say, um, this is going to get a little bit heavy, but I guess this is probably the easiest example I could think of. So um, many of my clients, like, you know, they went through um, sexual traumas during their childhood and that's really, really hard to understand. Right. And, with kids because it's really hard to make sense of that. They usually grow up thinking, oh, I did it because I deserved it. There's something inherently wrong with me to deserve something so bad and I can't change that. So when you kind of carry that weight of belief with you throughout your whole life, that's really hard because, I don't know, you have bad relationships and I'm like oh of course I deserve that and you know it's just not right um but when they go to therapy as adults and we try to work on their compassionate side then we say like okay look let's just say you are a fly on the wall and you witness this situation to like a child who is going through like sexual trauma how would you make sense of that situation? And then they would go, oh yeah, of course, like, you know, the adult is in the wrong because they, you know, they should know better. And, you know, was the child wrong? And then they're like, no. <laughs> and then that's sort of how they, I guess, slowly try to, I guess, make sense of it in a more objective way and, you yeah, and usually that's sort of how we can try to work on those things on in therapy.
0: Yeah, no, that was a really great example and I'm sure that like dealing with those situations is so difficult, but it's great to know that there is a way to like break that down and deal mm-hmm. with it even when you're dealing with pretty heavy like issues as well and Mm -hmm. how do you think cognitive biases impact like our decision-making process Um, are there strategies that you use or therapists in general employ to help mitigate these negative effects of biases Mm -hmm. in this context
1: um the thing is I think first of all we have to accept that um we will always be ridden with cognitive biases that's that's just a given and um i don't know if you've heard of his work but like daniel kahneman he's like the you know father of i guess rationality um even he was saying like you know he's dedicated his whole life for like this work and he would still get riddled by cognitive biases so it's okay to accept that like i don't think we'll ever reach a stage where we'll be like unbiased completely but When we recognize that and we recognize that tendency that we have, um, we can, I guess, slowly make adjustments to how we make decisions, right? Because sometimes, I guess, I don't know if this is probably like um, a good example, but the most basic things about like people, let's say, like who grew up in a more individualistic kind of culture compared to people in a more, um, I guess, like communal sort of cultures, um, the way they were born and raised, they hear very different sort of values, right? It's like sometimes it's like, oh, you know, you have to put your happiness first um, or you have to put, other people's like happiness first so from that lens like we already have a very different way of looking at life and that shapes to how we make decisions right because um let's just say when people sort of like grow up in that more individualistic kind of culture and then they like oh i have to you know chase for my happiness um i'm gonna make big decisions that i It doesn't matter um, about how it's going to create any ripple effect, but I just need to make myself happy. So leaning too far to that direction is not great, but so is also like leaning too far in the other direction where it's like, oh, I need to self-sacrifice for like the good of everyone that I'm not looking after myself at all. So Both extremes aren't great, but if we can sort of like guide people a little bit towards the center, so a little bit um, on the opposite direction of what their tendencies are, then hopefully they can make a more well-rounded sort of decision.
0: Yeah, of course, and I'm sure a lot of people are now thinking, "Oh gosh, what are my cognitive biases?" <laughs> um, do you mind going over some of like the common ones, some common tendencies people have?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, a lot of, I think the most common ones are confirmation bias, so um, that tendency where we sort of look um, for things that already confirms our pre-existing beliefs, so um, we don't even entertain the possibility of like, oh, maybe I was wrong. And, um, we just sort of become very, um, cooped up in that sort of beliefs, which kind of is what happens a lot lately. Um, I guess with like how social media algorithms like design, you know, people kind of get stuck in their own thought bubble because, you know, you get what you like. And, you know, it doesn't really incentivize you to like, hey, I probably should look in the other direction and see what's out there. So that's a pretty common one. Um, I think another thing as well is, uh, I think this is my favorite one, is the illusion of control, because I think we all have that. And um, I think (laughs) it kind of like relates back to the whole resilience thing, because it's like, we think we, have control over things that we actually have no control over Um, but because we have that illusion then this also like leads to how people get really stuck in you know some of their mental health issues because they keep trying to push for that control when in reality it's probably best to like let that go.
0: Yeah. And like, how would you say I've noticed that like emotions would probably play a big part in this. How would you say our emotions interact with these cognitive biases and cognitive appraisal as well, especially in terms of decision making?
1: Yeah. um, Well, emotions, they always play a big role in everything, right? Because when we experience some really hard emotions, like when we feel really sad or really hurt, our brain will be extremely motivated to get rid of whatever that is, that's hurting us, or we would avoid things that really embarrass us, um, kind of leading to the anxiety there because, you know, when people feel really anxious about something things, because we don't want to feel embarrassed in these kind of situations. So I want to avoid that at all costs. Um, so, emotions really play like strong roles in these and which is why like I always tell my clients like when you're trying to make decisions just make sure you're not hungry angry lonely or tired because you know we don't make good decisions when we're experiencing any of those things so um, it's a good little acronym for it. it's called HALT so like when you're experiencing any of that just HALT and make sure you eat or sleep and then like get back to it.
0: Yeah. Oh my God. The amount of times I could say that I've been hungry and tired and have made bad decisions (laughs) is bad. So yeah, I definitely can relate to that. Um, and how do they like influence, for example, if we have to make bigger choices, cause sometimes there's like Mm -hmm. the simple decisions, Oh, should I do this? Should I not do this? Mm -hmm. Um, but then there's like the bigger decisions that would impact like our future selves, for example, Mm -hmm. how would, um, like cognitive, like biases and appraisal affect those bigger decisions we have to make so
1: i guess like with long-term kind of decision making this is where like Annie duke's book come in really handy because um she was talking about like how um life is more like poker than it is like chess because we make those kind of big decisions in uncertainty like there's all of these probabilities of getting, you know, good outcomes, getting bad outcomes. But the thing is that we often, I guess, like analyze the quality of our decisions based on the outcomes, which is not a great way of like analyzing our decisions. Um, And we sort of like look back and we thought, Oh, you know, that was a bad decision because it didn't turn out. And Therefore, when we try to like make similar kind of decisions in the future, we sort of like rely on that. And that's not a really wise way to like make long term decisions. Um, so there's this thing called like hindsight bias, where, of course, like hindsight is twenty-twenty because the outcomes has happened. But I guess like when it comes to making those long term decisions, it's it's really important for us to be able to know that it's all probabilities and we're pretty much betting on our future when we make those kind of decisions. So when, let's just say, if I ask you, Joe, like, um, I don't know, let's just say you uh, wanna buy a house um, at a nice suburb in Melbourne, because I don't know, the prices are really great at the moment, which I doubt it is, but let's just say that's the case. and, you know, that's a big decision, right? And you have that or you have, I don't know, I guess still staying where you're at, paying maybe like the same amount of rent um, and yeah, that's it. So again, that's like really hard decision to make. And we don't know what the prices of houses are going to be like seeing the next, Few years or so. So again, what we're trying to find out is like, okay, what's the probability of you actually like um, paying off that house? What is that probability that um, your current rent prices isn't going to be like increased? I'm saying this just because of the rental problems in Brisbane. But anyways. <laughs> um, When we, I guess, like, start to think about these decisions in terms of maximizing the probabilities rather than like, I just want to make the best decision, as in like, I want to make like sort of the best outcomes that we start to, I guess, like look for other things that will add to like our information, right? Let's just say I know nothing about like the house markets, but If I know that I'm betting my money, uh, lots of money on this, then I'll be more driven to like, I guess, talk to, um, I don't know, people who understand that a lot more Um, or just to like consult to the banks and all that stuff rather than just like, well, I'm just going to like go make this big decision and see how it goes which we kind of tend to do right sometimes
0: yeah for sure um i think that it's really hard when you try to like compare smaller decisions you make with like those bigger ones because there's so much more at stake when you're making those bigger decisions like for example buying a house like especially if you know nothing about like the industry or whatever you're trying to make a decision about. Um, it's, there's like a lot to consider when you're going into that. So how do you as a therapist or how can therapists in general, um, help Mm -hmm. promote awareness of our cognitive biases or like more informed decision-making to help like clients? Well,
1: hopefully through podcasts, but also (laughs) like, um, I guess with with the clients as well, like, I think really talking about these things as, um, probabilities, which is why I really like how, um, how Annie Duke sort of framed it in her book, because let's just say, when we think about things in probabilities, then I guess like the way we see the world is going to like change as well. Right. So, I guess like with clients, a lot of the times, well, I think probably like 90% of my clients um, sort of like sit in that sort of very black or white sort of thinking. It's like either all of this or like nothing at all. And um, I don't know what's a good example for this, but let's just say um, when it comes to making career decisions, let's just say. They're just like, I either follow my dreams, um, not listening to like my parents or anyone around me, or I just become slave to like my parents' decisions. Well, you don't have to like, just choose one of those two. (laughs) Like you can actually go explore any other option that we might not even consider before. And gather more information about it, gather more information about, like, the job market, getting information on what kind of new jobs starting to emerge. Like, I think there's, like, a lot of websites actually on job. um, Was it job prediction? Like, um, I guess it's in a government website somewhere that is, like, you know, how the job's growth is going to be, like, predicted in the next five, 10 years, but I don't think people know about that. So when clients talk about this in sessions, like we can actually brainstorm some of these ideas so that we can actually pick up those blind spots that they might have. So they can actually find the sort of relevant and like the accurate information that can help them make that decision, hopefully.
0: Yeah, for sure. And like you said, for example, if you're looking at jobs like doing research on the market, like Mm -hmm. that's a form of resilience, like taking the Mm -hmm. initiative to do your own research and make yourself as well equipped as possible. So we've already talked about emotional factors. Now, if we were to tie in cultural factors as well, how would that help shape cognitive appraisal and biases in our decision making? Do you have any examples of that?
1: Yeah, so I guess like um, this kind of relates back to my research a lot more because um, we're trying to look at how to improve career decision making in adolescence. So, with cultural factors, like I think some cultures really value that sort of idea where it's like, oh, you sort of continue the family business, or like you know, oh, our family comes from this kind of profession and then you know it kind of falls on you to like continue that or even just as simple as you know you listen to what your parents say and um you know kind of follow their decision um whereas some other cultures might more so like providing that freedom of choice but also like really values that idea of um being true to yourself being um I guess, being authentic and just do whatever that makes you happy. So this relates back to like how then people get really torn between making decisions. And I guess I see a lot of young people getting very torn. Just Do I follow my dreams? Do I follow what my parents said? Um, and that's it. Like there's not really that kind of encouragement of like, hey, the the job market is constantly changing, so maybe it's not a bad idea just to explore what's out there and find what's for you, maybe eventually, because um, the jobs that were high, like you know, in fashion when I was sixteen were probably no longer <laughs> in fashion, and um, you you know, you kind of have to catch those momentums and, like, catch the right timing as well to enter, like, certain careers. So a lot of people, when they get too wound up and, like, too connected to sometimes, like, these cognitive biases that stems from, like, cultural beliefs, they can get stuck in their like decision-making because it's like, Oh, I feel like I'm either betraying myself or like betraying my family if I make this kind of decision and that's not great. So it will be really good to be able to balance out those views a little bit more. Like how can we actually bring all of these values together so that you can actually make a better decision? It all at the end, like it all kind of comes down to the process of making these decisions, right? Because we can't tell if the outcomes are going to be good or bad. So, what we can do is actually improving the way we make these decisions so that we hopefully can, like, increase the probability of getting the good outcomes.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I liked how you mentioned that feeling of like betrayal that you Mm -hmm. have to, if you pick, for example, following what your parents think over what you want, that's a form of betrayal. But being able to achieve a balance is so crucial as well. Um, And for example, if someone does value both what their parents think and also following their dreams, how would they go about making a decision that sort of encapsulates that balance?
1: Um, I guess it really depends on like how you embody those values right because a value is a value like we could share the same value yet we embody it very differently so that means like we act it out differently in our decisions in in our life. so i think that's really important so that let's just say if a child is to make a career decision that is not something that their parents would like initially approve of, but let's just say, Hey, look, I made this decision because I, I am trying to embody these kind of values, which, you know, you taught, and then it's kind of like a way to make peace with that because it's like, well, we're still sharing the same values. And I'm just going about it in a slightly different way.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think being able to speak up for like your values and being able Mm -hmm. to stay true to them is so important, especially if you've got like conflicting ones. I, I personally think that people should be able to, you know, embody all their values and not have to pick one over the other. So that's really great. Um, and that I think leads into my next question of, I know we've touched on this a bit as well, but like how can we develop more awareness surrounding like the negative effects of like our biases um, in terms of like decision-making? I think, um, I think we could definitely like have
1: more conversations about it um, in a way that is actually productive. So I think what often happens when we have these kind of conversations, um, especially about biases, I think a lot of people come up with, you know, still cognitive biases, but people come up with more of, um, I guess, stereotypes. I think that's been like widely talked about, but, I think stereotypes is more so like a um, a form of cognitive biases. But I guess like when we talk about like cognitive biases, I think a lot of the times we, I don't know, when you think about like cognitive biases, usually like what's the first thing that comes to your mind?
0: Oh, when I think of that, I think of like, I would definitely say the first one you mentioned, what was that? Oh.
1: confirmation
0: bias? Confirmation bias. That okay. definitely comes into my mind because there are things that I just won't budge on because I know <laughs> they're this certain way. Um, yeah. And a lot of the time I'm actually not aware that I'm I'm doing that. But since mm-hmm. learning about it, I am, I've am. i gotten more aware of it, but it doesn't really bother me for some reason because I'm just so stuck in my ways about certain things. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and And I think we all will do that to an extent. And I think when we become more aware of it, like he said, you know, you try to sort of like actively look for it a little bit more, right? So it's like, I'm I'm not showing confirmation bias all the time. It's like, well, there are some things that I won't budge and that's fine, Um, but there are also some other things that might be, um, I guess like a little bit more consequential Let's say if I didn't budge, if I just believe that I don't know, this is a very silly example, but it's like let's say I you know truly believe like my research is like 100 percent correct and no one else can you know say anything about it. And that's that's not the way to do things. So um yeah, like I guess in you know, when it comes to getting people to talking more about cognitive biases, I think even I guess like making it a little bit more known that, you know, these things exist. We are all in this together. We're all like not 100% immune to this and that's okay. But as long as we can recognize it and um, we can do other things about it, we can do practical strategies about it. um, Yeah, that's how we continuously, I guess, trying to learn and improve ourselves and hopefully be less biased.
0: Yeah, of course. And you did mention this idea of like overconfidence, for example, Mm -hmm. if you're doing research, like you said, and you know that exactly what you're doing is Entirely correct. That (laughs) is a bit of overconfidence. So, like, how do you think that illusion of like control and like influence in like our decision making process can affect us when we're faced with adversity, especially if we're so stuck in like our ways and we aren't able to like break away from this idea that what I'm thinking is right and nothing else is like even something I should consider?
1: Yeah, that's that's a really good one because, um, I guess with overconfidence like it's um it's sort of like this belief right that it's like oh i'm you know i think i'm getting everything right of course and you know there's a whole reason why we all do this to an extent but we we use our own experiences to i guess like to make those cognitive appraisal right so sorry so like based on our own life experiences what we experience we then make these sort of like assessments of like how people do things and it's like why people make certain kind of decisions and um it's it's not a it's not the best way to like go around like doing you know just living our life so I guess like when we face adversity let's just say when we sort of face a um, a difficult sort of like situation so let's just say when let's just say when we fail something I think that's a huge one I think a lot of people really don't like failing things um let's say we we tried something and we failed we didn't get it um i think when we <laughs> have that vice of like being like overconfident that can really like take us down right because it's like oh, i'm so sure i'm gonna like, get this thing i'm gonna like do this really well i know it it didn't happen oof that's really hard i'm probably not gonna do it again um or let's just say I don't know, even with um relationships, sometimes like you know, we're so like certain that uh this is this is absolutely gonna work. Um you know, oh all, all those couples, you know, they can't get their stuff together. We can absolutely do it. I was like, well, well, no, because we're all we all have these sort of really biased opinions about like ourselves about the world around us so it's it's very hard to make that kind of objective assessment um, without other people's feedbacks So I think part of the puzzle that's like really important in this kind of scenario is to be able to, implement like incorporate and to receive other people's like feedbacks as well and not just from like one person that like knows us the best you know sometimes it's really useful having those really brutal kind of assessments from people that we actually aren't that close with because they probably will provide like a little bit more of a An objective kind of assessment to us and you know to like the situation and um, I think if we even just incorporate that a little bit more I think that can definitely help our individual sort of like decision making really
0: yeah for sure and I think a lot of people might get caught between being confident, which is a good thing. And then being uncertain, which obviously you don't, not everyone wants to be uncertain. I certainly don't. Um, And being able to achieve a balance between the two is important without reaching the extremes of um, either end of that. Um, So thank you so much for going through all those questions. And I think we've unpacked a lot. And I think there's so much that we all can relate to because decision-making is so universal, no matter how small your decision is or how big it is. Um, So now we're just to go into the practices debrief um, section. So here we're just going to flesh out those tips we were talking about a bit more, but from a bit more of a personal perspective. Um, so this is essentially where we just ask our experts what they do to help them, for example, in this case, be more effective with um, their personal resilience. So Gasani, what is a practice that you do to help deal with cognitive appraisal?
1: I talk to different people a lot (laughs) um so i guess like you know i have of course like i have my like absolute best friend um who understands me and all that stuff but i know as well like some of them can be pretty biased (laughs) so um i really try to like talk to people who are like maybe like less related to the the situation Um, but i also like um I think I'm pretty lucky that like my best friend is actually my best like devil's advocate as well, because she'll be like, um, she comes in with very good intentions, but she was also very good at picking out my blind spots. So if you haven't found that kind of person in your life, I highly recommend. <laughs> um, but I also think, regulating your emotions is very, very important um, in these kind of cases, because when bad things happen and you don't feel great about it, if other people also will react the same way that you do, then it's probably okay, right, for you to feel sad, for you to feel hurt or angry, whereas I know a lot of people can get a little bit um, stuck with it. I was like, Oh, I shouldn't be angry. I shouldn't feel sad. So yes. Um, giving yourself some time, um, even if it's 10 minutes to like really sit with that emotions, no distraction. Um, a practical strategy I like to share with my clients, um, which they usually laugh at, but it's true. I do this. Um, <laughs> Whenever I already feel sad, like the emotions already there, let's say I'm at home, like I'm not doing anything dangerous, I'm not driving, I set up a timer on my phone, 10 minutes and just throw it in. I will just sit with that until the timer runs out. When it, when time's up, I'll be like, all right, that's it. I'm done. I've already felt that. Let's go back to life. So Yeah.
0: Wow, I actually love that. That's actually such a great one. Um, I would 100% even do that. So you just sit there and allow yourself to feel what you're feeling, think what you're thinking. Yeah,
1: yeah. And, uh, you know, that's for like a lot of things really. But I think the most important thing is at the end of it, when the timer runs out, you let that go. And, you know, we try to like get back to life, you know, doing tasks, like getting back to our daily activities Um, which I think people just don't do enough, you know, just taking that break five, 10 minutes, it's not going to change your day, but if you distract yourself, you don't allow yourself to feel it when it comes, then it's like, well, the feelings are going to come with you continuously, probably for like days or weeks. So, yeah,
0: yeah. No, that's really great. And what if you get to the end of like your five or ten minutes and you're still struggling to get out of thinking and feeling all those things? For example, if you're thinking about something pretty heavy, um, I know personally I might struggle to get out of that bubble of because I might have thought of something new or I might have spiraled into a whole new sort of dilemma.
1: Mm. That's a really good question um, because – when you first start doing this, it will feel a little bit hard when you first, um, start to like stop the timer and then go back to doing your things. There might be some like remnants of feelings inside. I think that's fine. Um, as long as we like commit to it. So if the feeling, like if the wave of emotions come back again, um, we do that whole process again until we're like done. But It's interesting you mentioned also, you know, what if you kind of spiral into your thinking? But it's like, well, um, I guess, like, when we, when we like feel these emotions, like, why are we trying to solve it, like, by thinking, which leads to like people spiraling, right? So I think to answer that question, say, like, whatever is making you like, spiral in in your thoughts. I say if it if it's like feeling really worried, feeling really like um anxious. Um I guess it's like allowing yourself to feel the emotions more rather than like thinking. Um I think that's going to be the key to like really make this strategy work. Because in that moment when you're sitting with it for like five, 10 minutes. The challenge is to not try to solve the emotions because the emotions aren't your problems to solve. So.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really great way of thinking it, especially for overthinkers like myself, (laughs) we would be kind of questioning doing something like that. We we would be like, oh, what are we getting ourselves into? But I think having that awareness of like how you're going to go into it and how you're going to set yourself up to actually make the most of that is a really good way of going about it. And Mm -hmm. how do you think that this practice would impact our resilience and perceptions in life?
1: I think with this kind of practice in the long run, like what we're trying to do is to allow ourselves to kind of go with the ebb and flow of life, right? So what often happens is that people try to resist these feelings so badly that they're just trying to like push it, push it, push it away. But when we're so rigid in that sense, then it's so it's a lot harder for us to like bounce back off of it. Whereas when we sort of allow ourselves to go with the ebb and flow of it, it you know, you're not sort of like stretching yourself thin so that you can actually, you know, if you think about like rubber bands, for example, like, you know, if you just kind of like keep stretching it, it will like break at some point. Right. With, you know, um, whereas if we sort of like allow it to, I guess, like sh- it's like stretch gently and then like i guess like let it fall back to its place and then you know it will stay a lot longer and i don't know you probably relate this this is like a really silly comparison but like hair ties i don't know how many like hair ties we've abused over like the last few years just like you know twisting it really tightly whereas like if we don't do that it will generally last a lot longer
0: yeah, no, that's a really great way of thinking about it, and I'm definitely gonna note down that practice as something that <laughs> I want to try personally. Um, so thank you for going over that. I'm let me know. sure we. No, I definitely will. I'll let you know how that goes because I've personally been trying to find ways to like deal with certain um, emotions and how that impacts like my decision making as well, because not having a practice that you can fall back on really impacts your resilience and ability to bounce back. So I think it's really great we touched on that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think now we'll go into some questions from the audience. So here, Mm -hmm. we've just got some questions that we've gathered that we're going to ask you. So the first one is what in your opinion is the most important quality in, for example, a mental health therapist? Like, you've shown me so many great ones today already but what do you think is really important especially when you're talking about cognitive appraisal and biases
1: I think I think maybe there's a few um, that I would probably have to say I think one is like realizing that we're also humans um and I think even like admitting that to our clients as well that like look we're also humans we're we're also like going through a lot of these different difficult things. And it doesn't mean that we can't handle things like in the best way all the time as well. (laughs) I think that's, um, that's a really important thing. Um, I know a lot of therapists get burned out really, really quickly because they're really trying to like push themselves to like, you know, to always be a hundred percent, um, all the time, no matter what, you know, for their patients, which I think there's, I think there's like levels to it. Like, of course, you know, when you are present with your clients, you give it your hundred percent, but when other things happen in your life and you know, you can't be that to your patients, like your, your clients, like you should at least like acknowledge that and, um, because that won't be fair to yourself or like to your clients. Um, But I also think with, I guess, reminding ourselves that we're humans as well is to also not get, not get frustrated at our clients um, if they're not progressing in a way that we hope they would. And I think this is really kind of relates back to the whole like illusion of control really because sometimes we have that as well um as therapists thinking like oh if i do like this is this, this kind of approach like surely my clients will be like better by now they would they wouldn't need to see me again by now but the reality of it is like when we work with clients you put that faith and trust in them that when they would actually make those changes outside of your sessions um and two that they also trust you (laughs) in like the things that you're talking about the things that you're saying to them so um yeah like I think being I guess as human (laughs) as possible in the sessions I think it's a good quality to have
0: Yeah, and that's really great. I recently heard someone say that we're all irrational human beings. And that's Mm -hmm. something really important to remember. And I feel like a lot of us think of therapists as these people made out of steel, that they've got everything figured out, that you can unload on them, and they just don't react at all, (laughs) because they know all the answers. But yeah. You guys are human at the end of the day, too. So it's really great awareness to have. Mm-hmm. And moving into our next question, do you think that there are any strengths or weaknesses to the cognitive appraisal theory? Because at the end of the day, there's a bit of science behind it as well, I, I assume. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so, yeah,
1: um, that's a really good question.
0: Um,
1: as with I guess like cognition, um, I guess the science behind it is really, really complicated. Um, uh, because you know, it's, it's not like, as we kind of like talked through today, like it's not just our cognitions. It's like you know, our emotions, our experiences, like everything is so like heavily connected. And I think one thing that also, um, isn't touched that often as well is like, you know, even our physical health has a lot to do with that. So um, while, yes, I think because I'm a little bit biased towards like cognitive psychology, so um, I, I do believe that there is a lot of power in like how people hold on to their beliefs about the world and that could really like relate back to, I guess how they make appraisal of like situations, but I also understand that there are some like very specific circumstances that, yeah, you you kind of understand like, you know, how people sort of make that kind of um, appraisal of that situation in that sort of way. And I think if there's not really that motivation to I guess change it or even entertain the possibility of something different to what they've already believed in i think it's yeah i think to make those kind of changes will be really hard
0: yeah for sure and i think this kind of leads into the next question as well um Mm -hmm. What factors do you kind of assess or consider before recommending sort of like a treatment plan or a way to go about things? Um,
1: so I guess it really depends on the client's presentation and where they're at because sometimes you do get clients who are like, I guess, are just at that place where they're like, look, I have nothing to lose. I'm willing to try anything and everything under the sun just to like make a difference. So that with those kind of clients, we can usually be a little bit more, I guess, prescriptive, meaning like, okay, um, what are some of the habits that you've been doing? How can we maybe change some of those habits, see what happens, you know, all that stuff. Whereas I think sometimes when the clients are still very early on in their journey where they're still like I just don't feel great and then that's it um maybe we still need to I guess like build that trust first like build that rapport um I guess even getting to the core of the problem it's like what's making you not feel great and and then we then slowly build up into the like more practical strategies is as to like what um, changes can they make um, to hopefully like change their lives a little bit better.
0: Yeah, beautiful, and mm. it's a it's all a process, right? Like everyone's mm. different. There's no one way that fits everyone, and I'm sure that you know that better than me. <laughs> um, that everyone has different ways to go about things, and I'm sure you apply that with people mm. you work with as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I. I guess with my approach with my clients, like I really try to make it as collaborative as possible because I'm, I'm just there with the tools and they're, you know, sort of coming to me with all of these knowledge about their life. And I can just use that knowledge, um, to hopefully provide the right tools for them and, I always encourage them to be very like upfront with me. If the things that we're doing are just not working out, just tell me. I I always assure them like I'm not gonna take it personally. I'm just you know, it's just the tools. I know it's not me. So yeah, like I think it's it's definitely a collaborative process.
0: Yeah. Beautiful. Well, thank you for answering those ones. And okay. I think we'll move into our open mic section now. So here the guest just has a chance to talk about anything that they are passionate about. Could be genuinely anything um, and it doesn't have to be related to the topic either. So yeah. I'll hand it over to you, Gasani. if there's anything at all you want to talk about. Yeah. So I I guess
1: honestly, like I'm, I'm very passionate about these things. I don't know if you can tell by now, but I I really think a lot about um, decision making in my day to day life. I I think I think it's something that is not often implemented in mental health side of things as much as it should. Um, I think when it comes to like mental health, I think a lot of people focus on like you know the beliefs, the emotions. Um, which is great, you know, those are like the big part of it, but decision-making is also like a piece of the puzzle that can really, I guess, like either improve or deteriorate someone's, um, quality of life. So I do get very like passionate and riled up about this when talking about this and I really try so hard to, I guess, incorporate that a lot in even like my sessions with clients, because again, like some small decisions that we make, even if it's to talk to someone or not, or, you know, just to say certain things or not, or even just to not make a decision is still a decision that will impact us in the long run. We just don't know how yet. So um, yeah, I do think it's, hopefully like something that more people can think about and like of, of course if anyone wants to kind of talk more about like decision making how to improve it I'm more than happy to see them <laughs> but um yeah like I think that's that's pretty much it
0: yeah that's really great I think we've definitely opened things up to have a better conversation about these things now that we've actually learned what cognitive appraisal is well for Mm -hmm. me personally um so it's really (laughs) great that we've done that and thank you so much for joining us today and unpacking Mm -hmm. all of that it was so interesting especially to learn about so many different concepts and sometimes we might not approach those things because they seem a bit scary or the words are a bit too big but I'm really (laughs) like grateful that we've created a space where we can talk about that. So, thank you so much for being here and it's been an absolute pleasure. Um so lastly for those who want to find out a bit more about you, where can they go to get that information?
1: Um I am on LinkedIn. So, uh gasani soryandini copy paste it. Um, I'm not on social media, but um I am on my website so www.kasanipsychologist.com.au um i do offer telehealth um i guess like services so you can do like online booking and we can do it all online super easy i can do the whole process for you so
0: Amazing. Um, and we also have kasani's details in the description below. So to everyone listening, please don't forget to like and subscribe on whatever platform you're using. And we'll see you all next time. Thanks, Joanna. You've been listening to Bouncing Back, the Personal Resilience Science Insights podcast produced by the Life Management Science Labs. Listen to episodes from LMSL's 10 Life Management Perspectives on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube or other podcasting apps on your smartphone. If you enjoy this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it and subscribing to our channel as it helps other people find it and us grow to bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website, pr.lmsl.net where you can join our movement. I'm Joanna, thanks for tuning in.